Welcome to the e-commerce badassery podcast, the place for scrappy female entrepreneurs who want to learn actionable steps and strategies to grow the traffic, sales, and profit in your e-commerce business. I'm your host, Jessica Totillo Coster, a 20-year retail veteran who spent three years as the only employee of a seven-figure online store. That shit was crazy. I know exactly how it feels to do all the things, and I'm sharing everything I learned the hard way so you don't have to. I may have started this business by accident, but supporting badass bosses like you lights me the fuck up, and I am so stoked to see you grow. Are you ready, babe? Let's roll. Welcome back to the e-commerce badassery podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Totillo Coster. This is the last episode in our founder series, and I'm joined by Ellie Lum of Clumhouse. Ellie is a master bag maker, pattern designer, and teacher. Her superpower is teaching makers to achieve professional quality results on a home sewing machine and have a hell of a lot of fun while doing it. From her humble beginnings as a bike messenger in Philly to running a five-woman company, Ellie's journey has always been about creativity and grit. I love me some grit. Before we hop into the episode, I want to add a little disclaimer here. We're going to get deep into some of the myths around having big teams and big revenue. And Ellie is getting super candid on her experience of cutting her team and lowering her revenue. You're going to hear clear as day that neither one of us is too keen on building a big team. But I want you to know that big teams and big businesses aren't inherently bad if that's the type of business you want to build. The real takeaway here is that you don't need to have those things to have a business that funds the lifestyle you want. And I say all of this because it's really easy to get starry-eyed when you see what other people are doing in your space. Believe me, I've been there. Even though I have a pretty clear vision for how I want things to look, it doesn't mean I don't get a bit of FOMO. But when I really dig deep and think about what that means, because I had the team and the salaries and all of that when I had my brick and mortar, I know at this point in my life, I'm just not that into that. But that's just me. You can build whatever kind of business you want. And if a big business with a big team is what you're looking to do, then yes, do it. I still recommend you listen to this episode because we also go off on a tangent about understanding your numbers and expenses, which is a really important thing to understand. Okay, enough rambling. Let's get into this episode. Hey, Ellie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I am super excited to chat with you because we were chatting the other day about something completely different. And like we seem to do anytime we talk is we sort of go down these other like rabbit holes and tangents. And we got into conversations about business finances and what kind of business you want to build and all of that stuff. So I'm super excited to dive into it because I think it's not spoken about enough. But before we get there, can you just tell the audience a little bit about what you do and how you got to where you are now? Thanks, Jessica. So I run a custom bag pattern company and we sell patterns and kits. And I also teach online classes and I teach bag design and I teach bag making, which is like the skill building part and then the design part. So that's what I do. It's in the craft industry. And prior to that, I ran a custom messenger bag company. So I used to be a bike messenger and I made messenger bags for bike messengers. And they were custom and we made them in-house. And I ran small batch manufacturing in 
Philly, in San Francisco, and in Seattle. And I did that company. Let's see, I started in 97. So I ran that and then went to school for teaching and adult education and then started Clumhouse. So Clumhouse is my business now, and that's the pattern and kit company. And that is really the marriage of my degree in adult learning theory and my many years of manufacturing custom bags. Got it. When you were doing the messenger bags, had you had any experience in manufacturing or any of that before? Did you just figure it out as you went? We just figured it out as we went. We were super scrappy and my mom taught me how to sew when I was six. So I had been sewing for a long time and we just wanted to make bags for ourselves and friends that didn't fall apart. As we were messengers in Philly, it was really gnarly weather that the stuff that we made had to stand up to. Got it. I love when people start things when they don't actually know what they're doing. Most of the time, that's true. And just kind of figure it out. And when they can end up building a business out of it, I just think that's so freaking cool. I'm forever impressed with my husband and his business partner for just buying a camera off Craigslist that they didn't know how to use and asked people to pay them for photos. It's funny because they look back and they're like, wow, I can't believe we charged people for this because it really wasn't good. Come leaps and bounds now. But it's just a really great reminder and proof that if you are in the thick of feeling like maybe I shouldn't even be a business owner, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. So many people have figured it out and you can figure it out too. So there's a little reminder for you. But I just want to dive right into the financial stuff because nobody's talking about this, at least not enough. And what happened in our conversation, I didn't even really realize it until you said it. But with Clumhouse, previously you had how many members on your team? I had six full time and a couple contractors plus myself. So it was a pretty big team. And now it's just you and some contractors, me and a part time assistant, and she's an employee. And that's the only person I kept on from my larger team that I had and grew through COVID. And what made you initially make that decision? There's a lot of aspects of that. It's financial and it's operational. And excuse me if I use a lot of jargon, I'll try to explain it. I mean, I know you know it, but I don't want to be jargony to everyone listening. But during COVID, we were almost finished building our Shopify site. And we knew we were going to go e-commerce. And prior to that, I was teaching mostly in-person workshops. And I had other people teaching workshops too. So it was like this local in-person. But I knew and I had plans to scale and make the rev stream a little more focused on e-com so I could diversify. Then COVID hit and it was like right when our Shopify site was going to get launched. And we had this really important and big wholesale client and they were buying a ton of shit. And I was like, this is great. This is scaling money. And so I was like, I'm going to pivot because I know that I can make more money with in-person classes. And I had all these contractors working for me. So with the money from the large wholesale, it was like 33% of my top line rev or my sales. So it was like a good chunk of money. And so then I hired a 
copywriter, marketing person, and then all branding person. And they both had already been working for me as contractors part-time. And then I also hired my two production assistants who had also been working as contractors. So it was like I brought all these people on knowing that I was going to launch my Shopify site, going to start buying paid ads, knew that my large wholesale client was funding all this growth. And then COVID hit and my wholesale client, their business closed. COVID hit March, business closed May. And they had sent us projections for Q1 and Q2 because we were manufacturing kits so we could buy all the supplies. Their projections were like $150,000. So in writing as projections, they weren't POs. So I knew I could afford the salaries at the time. So I didn't want to go back on my word to everyone. Of course. And I was like, we're going to make this work. So we just poured all this money into ads, which worked for a little bit. And a lot of it was retargeting. I hired someone to do the ads. So then I had this growth plan. And when I have a plan and say I'm going to do something, by hell or high water, I'm going to do it. For better or worse, Jessica, and that's the thing, is I get like super tunnel vision about just being like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's in my plan. And so I'm going to do it. And I tried that for a few years. And then as you know, with e-com and distribution and then manufacturing and all of that shit through COVID, it was so up and down and left and right and so much to figure out because I had just brought a team on. And then all of a sudden I had to figure out all this HR through COVID. And you feel responsible for their livelihoods. Oh, of course. So we lost that client and I was like, maybe I can get another wholesale client. And I did, but it still couldn't match. And so then I was like trying to make all these sales in order to cover the salaries. So then I stopped paying myself. And then I'm looking at all this and I sell things with fabric in it. So the cost of cotton was so high. And when I would call my supplier, they would be like, I can't even quote you a price because it's going to be different tomorrow because the market is changing so fast. So much stress. So I couldn't even source everything. And I was trying to hold it all together. And then three years through COVID, I like dove in deeply learning all this stuff about finances and started really getting into projections, strategic plans, all the profit margin stuff, following profit first, labor efficiency ratios, just really into the numbers and was like, what am I doing trying to chase my original plan? Like I said, that I had made pre-COVID and the numbers wouldn't work because that plan was based in what me and you talked about before, this FOMO about top line rev and trying to get to the one million. I was running in the hole without a pay rate that should be what a CEO or a business owner should make. So my payroll was up to 60% of OPEX post gross profit. But then my COGS were at 30%. So then I only had 10% left for operational expenses minus payroll. And then if you take tax into consideration, it's nothing. So I was draining all of the cash reserves that I had built from that larger distributor that then went under two months after COVID hit with the shutdown. And I was like, this is all just stupid. Like, what am I doing? 
It was the universe telling you there's a better way, Ellie. (laughs) And bless their souls, all my employees kept asking for raises, even though I was really transparent about what was happening and everyone knew what was happening. The expectation and the reality of what it means to run a small business and what people expect and was like, there's no way I can match that. So I'm just going to tap out. We're going to kind of circle back into a lot of what Ellie was saying. And I just did the math because I know we don't have to share the exact numbers here. But from what you were making from a top line revenue perspective before compared to what you're making now, it's less than half. Did I do that math right? Yes. I was trying to grow to 1 million. And I think I was tracking at like 750K and at no profit, maybe two, three, four percent net profit pre-tax, but at the bottom line. And then now it's 40% less, but my net profit pre-tax is 35%. Amazing. And I'm paying myself. And more than you were paying yourself previously before you had to stop doing that to pay everyone else. And when I put out the call to say, hey, who wants to come on the podcast? I had no idea where any of those conversations were going to go with anyone. And Ellie and I had this conversation completely randomly the other day. And it was like, oh, we have to talk about this on the podcast because All of the conversations that I do have with people about getting to that million dollars or that multi-million dollars, but do you want the business that comes along with that? And it is stories like this of why I bring that up, because we don't know what we don't know. And we just have this vision of what running a business like that is going to be. And rarely is it all sunshine and rainbows like we think. Now, that's not to say you can't go out and create that business if that really lights you up. For some people, that feels amazing. And they really do want to do that. And they want everything that comes with it. And that's awesome. But most of the people I talk to, they just want a business that gives them money, freedom, And like funds the lifestyle that they want to live and allows them to travel and do whatever. And not that you can't build a big business with a lean team. You totally can. But I think it's way harder to do in the product space, especially if you're making something versus just buying and reselling someone else's stuff or one product and just a bunch of variations on it or something. Let's talk about some of the stuff that you just said, because I think there's a lot of numbers underneath all the wisdom that you just dropped, which is straight up so true. And I like to think about it like 100% of the pie is all the money you make. And in product, we take a slice out to buy all our inventory. If we're manufacturing, The slice is maybe a little smaller from like a physical inventory perspective because we're able to have a better margin because there's not as many middlemen. But generally, the slice for inventory or COGS is going to be 20 to 40 percent if you're lucky. So you're always trying to get in between those two. So once you take that out, you're left with your gross profit, which already is so much less than a uh, digital-based business, which we talked about and we might get into. So with a digital business, you get that whole 100% of the pie 
And then you get to pay your employees from that. Whereas at physical-based businesses, we have to take that slice out for inventory. So we're already at only 70% of our money that we made. And then we have to pay our employees. Well, if we're paying market rate and we have like a code of conduct and a values and all this stuff, we're trying to sit within a certain salary bracket for people and what people expect. We're at least at 30 to 50% of what's left over after inventory comes out. 30 would be very low. And if you're actually paying market rate, you probably only have a good 30%, 40% maybe. But if you're paying yourself your actual market-based salary, which let's be honest, for any CEO or founder working at least 40 to 60 hours a week, which is what we do, you should at least be bringing in 50K. And it depends where you live because 50K in the Midwest is a whole lot different than 50K in LA. You can't live on that here. No, you should have at least 70 to 80 or 50% of your OPEX after your gross profit. So if you take 50% of that, that should be your take-home pay. And then on top of that, you should have at least 10 to 15% profit depending on where you're growing. So if you take all those percentages and you add them up, if you can tell like, hey, this is how I should be running my business. So you can take that 25% out for inventory, take the 50% out for how much you should be paying yourself or your workers. You're left with 50% to mess with. Well, if you're paying retail store or there's ads, 10 to 20%, you might as well put that in your COGS budget. So we're working with not much. And then on top of that, we're all offering 20 to 30% off for Black Friday. Off the top line rev. You're basically giving all your profit away. It's so hard. And I think I've told this story before. When I had my brick and mortar boutique, I shared a wall with Starbucks and I was in a shopping center and we didn't have a mall or a department store close by. So it was just this little commuter village. But it cost me 10 grand a month for that space. It didn't matter whether I made money or not. It was costing me 10 grand. And then just the electric bill alone, because it was a pretty big space. So when I talked to people about that business, yes, I did $650,000 in the first year of my boutique, which is amazing. But you know what? I've been doing it for a really long time. I had already worked in that market. So I had a book of clients. It's a very different experience than starting something on the internet from scratch, because I also had foot traffic and all of that but I had to pay for all of it. And we did some advertising and stuff, but the advertising was the 10 grand a month for my space because <laughs> I was paying for the location. But if you're just a needle in a haystack on the internet, it costs money to freaking get customers. You have things like social media and we think, oh, well, it's free. Social media ain't free. Even if you're not paying for ads, it's still time, energy, creative capacity, aggravation when it doesn't go so well, that is still time and money that you're spending. Literally everything you do is time and money. Or if you're a founder not paying yourself, well, you can't do that forever. You're going to have to pay someone else for it eventually. So you've got to calculate that in to your costs and stuff. And so 
there's just not enough conversation around money and really getting into the nitty gritty. And I love that you spent all that time doing that. I can tell, obviously, that you get really hooked on something and you will get into every nook and cranny trying to learn that damn thing. (laughs) For sure. I mean, even when I first hired everyone, which I absolutely needed that team to grow and they were amazing. Like, I'm still leveraging the work that they did. They built the company worth every penny. But I mentioned the labor efficiency ratio earlier, and I'll send you a link to the book. I think it was called Simple Numbers that I learned about it from. But essentially, like whatever you're paying someone, the work they produce, whether they're operational or revenue generating employee, should make the money back three times, 3.5 times, two times, depending, so that every person that works for you is an investment. They're not a cost. Well, if you don't know how to manage the team to turn everyone into an investment, then they're a fucking cost. 100%. And we don't start businesses to say, oh my God, I'm going to be the best team leader, manager ever. That's why I have my business. Yes, some of us have that as a skill, but a lot of times we don't. So then we have to hire an operational manager or someone. Well, that's a pure cost. So not to say that it's impossible or to scare people away, but you need to leverage people to work for you if you're going to make more money and you max out at a certain amount of sales if it's just you or you and your VA. That's why large companies have lots of employees. You just can't get there unless you have more people helping you. And when it comes to the team piece, because I spent my whole life in corporate companies with a couple entrepreneurial stints here and there, but mostly in corporate companies, and everyone has a role most of the time. Some of the mid-sized companies, there's a lot of overlap, but The idea is that every person is really good at the thing that you are hiring them to do so that they can make that money back for you. And when you're first starting with a team, sure, you're going to have people that are jack of all trades, master at nothing, because that's what you need. You need them to do a lot of things. But as you grow, you really need to focus that in. Otherwise, you're never going to get the output that you need to sustain that as you grow. And I have managed, led, hired, fired teams pretty much my whole working life. There is a reason why I stick to being a one-woman show. (laughs) Because I have zero desire at this point in my life today to build a team. Doesn't mean that I never will, but I'm certainly not there right now. And I think being really specific and understanding what kind of business you want and understanding what comes along with it, it will keep you really focused on what you're building and growing. Do you think you'll ever go back to like the big team and all of that? I love what you just said too. And I think there's so much in there, but I am similar to you in a sense where I have no desire to manage a team. I mean, I'm a teacher, so I'm used to managing a lot of people at the same time. I love empowering people and inspiring them and giving them amazing places to work or whatever. 
But I would say that there is a huge disconnect that is just part of our culture where micro businesses or small business have a different way of operating than what is considered common knowledge or status quo for how employees and employers interact, which is more like the standard is set from the corporate world. And you're right, when it's a small company, you do wear multiple hats. You can't really afford to have someone specialize in every single department because you don't have the money to pay that many people. Also, we stay at a lot of times having contractors to help us with our business, which is fine as long as you're legally doing that correctly. But I didn't like the responsibility and lack of freedom that came with having that big of a team because I wanted to do right by them. And I also wanted to leverage them. So it was like I was trying to figure out how to leverage them within the strategic plan that I made, given that it was pivoting every single few months because of COVID. All these different rev streams, focus, 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 build, switch. And it was tiring for everyone. And so I think my experience trying to run a team and keep it afloat and keep everyone employed and keep the business profitable during COVID. And mind you, it is not my first business either. I had a whole team and a store in Seattle in the mid-2000s. I had 15 people working for me and a whole retail store. And we manufactured everything in-house. So it wasn't the first time I had built a team, but it was the first time I had built a really legit team with full HR and all these benefits and everything. And it's a lot of fucking work to do that shit. And being someone who has been the employee at the big companies and the mid-sized companies and the small ones, and I've just, I've been around the block, what can I say? There is nothing worse than an absentee owner where it feels like, oh, we're all just here to do your bidding and make you a whole bunch of money so that you can just float around and do whatever and come and take money out of the safe every week. No one wants to work for a company like that. So if you are going to really build a team of people who are dedicated and into it, then you need to be there. You need to give a shit. You need to care about giving them a good experience which is like a whole other level of running a business. And again, it's not a bad thing. If you're into that, cool. But I see so many people just kind of get a little bit in over their head or not fully understanding what it is that they're working toward. And as you start to build that team, if you do get to a place where you can have all the people kind of in their zones of genius, as is the term. You need someone to manage and coordinate all that. Now there's another person you got to hire or it's going to be you. And that doesn't sound like freedom to me. I think there's a certain amount of commitment for a certain period of time through that growth cycle. Once you stabilize at whatever your first three-year goal would be or one year for some people, And there you max out where you're at one to two people, maybe with the VA. 
unless you're running really lean and you really know how to do your numbers right, you're probably not going to make over 300,000, 350,000 as just one person with the VA. Generally, I mean, of course, can be more, but there's a range there, 150, 300, and you're going to need to start hiring people to leverage, whether it's a contractor employee or a few of them. Well, you have to make standard operating procedures. There's a lot going on. So all of a sudden, your role as creator and founder, visionary CEO shifts to an operational role, which is totally fine for a certain amount of time. But if that's not your zone of genius, you better have a plan of getting out of that operational role within a year or something, or you're going to feel like you're dying inside. I didn't mind operational stuff. I'm a maker. I make stuff. I love systems. But it was too many things to also come up with the product line and then run the operations and manage the team, strategic planning, and my own life and be the face of the brand. So I think one of the reasons I love running businesses is I fucking love the puzzle. I love the game. If the game is harder, I'm in it more because it's challenging and it's fun and it's stimulating. But there's some times where I can get too in love with the game and not see the choices that are probably the better choices to make. That's such a good way to put it. Because it's so fun to just be like, I'm going to figure it out. I'm so the same way. Couple that with like tenacity and grit and you're making the wrong choices for too long. Because you're like, shit, I should have actually like taken a step back. Well, for one, maybe the strategic plan you made is no longer the plan that you need to follow. Giving that up and giving up that dream or idea of what you thought you were doing to be like, what should I actually be doing given the state of everything right now? And I think getting humble in that way definitely would have helped me. But it's funny, I'm like a very confident person. So that's also like really great, but also my Achilles heel because my overconfidence can actually shoot me in the ass all the time. So I'll be like, I'll get there. I can do anything or whatever. It's like, yes, but should you? It's not exactly, but it's very similar to like the sunk cost fallacy. You put so much time, energy, potentially money into something. And you think, well, I just have to keep going because I've already dumped so much into this. I mean, how many of us have spent way too long with the partner that we knew was not good for us? But oh my God, that's so many years I've already put into this. But when you can just separate yourself from that and say, is this the right direction for me, the right business for me, the right romantic partner for me? And just get clear and say, it's not change that situation, whatever it is, the magic on the other side of that is amazing. In your case, it was actually more money in your pocket, which is the whole reason we get into business in the first place. That's exactly right. And I think one of the things you just said, I want to go back to because stopping and asking yourself, is this right? That is hard to do when you're not sure anymore what is right. And that's when we get too much in our heads because we can justify anything or think about it in a certain way. But if you can just get in touch with that feeling and know that that's not how you want to feel when you're running your business, then that's all you need to know. This is not how I want to feel when I'm running my business. Therefore, I am not going to keep doing this. 
That's such a good way to frame it. I mean, I fall victim to this shit too, but there's so much outside influence and it's like, oh, I could do it this way and I could do it that way and they're doing it and oh my God, it looks so amazing. And this is just what I decided I wanted. I mean, I've changed my mind a lot of fucking times, even since just starting this business. And if I just kept going for the sake of continuing to go, instead of realizing this is not what I signed up for, I'm not into this. It's time for me to do something else. Running a business is fucking hard, but it's literally in all of us. And I think that most of the time, it's probably mindset stuff. I think so, too. And I think I am trying to build the business I want to run. And so far this year, it's great. But I'm also able to leverage all the work that had already been done from my past employees that built my product line with me, that built my marketing assets, that built the brand. I mean, it's all fucking built. So at the time when I thought I was just losing so much money, in retrospect, at this point, the end of 2023, it's been a whole year after this pivot of downsizing from my team. At the beginning of the year, I was like, oh my God, yes, all that money I was wasting. Now I'm like, oh, the assets that they built have a longevity beyond the years that they were paid, that they were a cost to the business or whatever. So that investment did pay off and it's still paying off. So I think originally in the beginning of the year, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to make so much more money. Like that shit was costing me so much. Now I'm like, oh, that was an investment and it was a smart investment. And I'm able to leverage that investment instead of me feeling like, fuck, I just spent a million dollars to make a million dollars or whatever. And everyone listening, you can do that. They just don't have to be employees. That can look like an outside consultant that you hire for X amount of time. That's someone you can hire to create assets for you, copywriters that you can hire as one off. And so you can invest in your business and get those assets that you can use again and again without taking on the weight of hiring real employees, which if you live in California is also a whole other thing. Thanks for saying that because I think that's important and that's a good way to go. All of this requires you to be organized and know what you want because you can't have an employee or a contractor and you can't just be like, oh, just help me. I need help. No, you need to tell them what a success look like for them because I've also hired a lot of consultants and a lot of people to help me that they weren't worth the money. There was this holistic element because I'm a very holistic person with having an employee in-house where they could really get the idea of the brand and like contribute in these like nuanced ways that someone that was offsite that was a contractor wasn't able to pick up on. And not that I couldn't have made a relationship with someone in that way, but someone being in-house, interacting with me all the time, understanding how the business runs they were able to produce really deep work. I think, too, there's so much nuance to everything that we do in business. Everyone's journey and situation and needs and strengths and weaknesses and how they need to fill the holes and what they don't know is also different. And this was actually part of the email that I sent out today, the day that we're recording this. I was like, I am so sick of the internet. 
AI this, AI that, chat this, hire this person, do this, get this platform. Like it is just constant. Try this, do this. You need this. And there's no nuance in the conversation because they're just promoting the thing that they have to promote or promoting the thing that they were paid to promote. And I think out of today's whole conversation is at the end of the day, this is your business. You get to build it your way. But I think the first step is being really honest with yourself about what you want that business to look like. And it's okay to change your mind. When I first started this, I had a different vision than what I have today. And I haven't even really been doing this that long. It didn't take me very long to figure out that initial vision I had, not the vision for me. And so I switched it up. And that's okay. But I needed to know that to know who I needed to help me, what I needed to go look for, what I needed to focus on and get really clear about that. And I feel like we're missing that very first step. I think so, too. And I think especially with people who are raised or cultured as women or female in our culture, we're not expected enough times to know what we want because most of the time it serves us more to know how to take care of other people from like a social currency perspective. So like for me, it's really hard to know what I want and then also realize that what I want is important enough to base a decision on it. What was the turning point for you? When did the realization come? Or was it just sort of the hell that was COVID? Part of it, I think, was that I had hired a few people that it was sort of my last ditch effort to ramp up a certain rev stream. And I was like, well, I need more people for this. And so... This was after the initial group of core people that had worked with me for five or six years. And this was me trying to rebuild that wholesale rev stream that I could never quite get off the ground again. And I quickly realized after I had hired more people that I couldn't slash didn't want to leverage those people. I moved to this 3,000 square foot warehouse and was like, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to reopen to in-person classes. And I was like, wait a second, I don't want to talk to anyone right now. I just need to rest. Like I've been trying to run this business through COVID. I don't have anything left. And then the people that I had hired, I didn't have the work for them like I thought I would because certain deals that I thought were going to go through didn't from a wholesale perspective. Then I felt like I was responsible for even more people and the plan wasn't working out. So then... I was like, I tried this. This was my last ditch effort to kind of rebuild post-COVID when everything started opening up. I was like, I don't want to run this business anymore. It's too hard. And there's no shame in that. And look at you now. I remember when, I think it was maybe on our very first conversation where you had really gone deep into the whole digital course thing. And you were like, I ran this launch and like you were just blown away at the results from that and being like, holy crap, like I can just launch this digital course. It's very seamless from your product because you're teaching people how to make shit and giving them the material for it. But it 
opened your eyes on, I always thought of myself as a product business first. And I was like, nah, girl, you're a course business. <laughs> Last year, when I was like ramping up physical production in-house stuff, I was also beta testing these courses, three of them that we were just talking about. And they did so well. I mean, like my first launch of one, it was like 50K and I was like, holy shit. And then it was this really nice marriage of physical goods. And then I was delivering it cohort style. So then I did it again. I did it again. They all were really good. And I was like, wait, this rev stream I was trying to ramp up in production with wholesale and in-person classes, it's not delivering. Yet this other rev stream with digital courses and cohort-based classes is delivering easily. And I was like, oh, well, I'm more into that anyways. If I could free up those 10, 20 hours a week, I could just be designing classes and serving my customers with education. And look, not everyone can go be a course creator, but I think it's a really great lesson in you really just have to let the data drive you. And that's really everything. If the data is telling you that something is not viable in your business, whether it's going wholesale or the amount of money that's going in your pocket or the social media platform you're spending all of your time on and it's not bringing you the results, the numbers just don't lie. And that doesn't mean that you can't try and tweak things and make things better. Absolutely, there's always room to optimize. But I think we spend too much time in that optimization, and I'm using air quotes, instead of let's just go double down on the thing that's working really well or try something new and see if that works. Like if you never thought, oh, let me turn my in-person class into a digital one, you would have been missing out. It's funny as I hear you say things and then it's just like they sound so simple, but it's so hard. And there's these little almost like perspective or mindset shifts where you do cut your losses once if you do look at your data. I think a big thing for me was like not letting other people down and not letting myself down by cutting my losses. You feel like a quitter. Yes. Reframing this idea of quitting as if it means it's letting yourself down and or other people down and whoever is relying on you. And yes, it is tough to break someone the news that they don't have a job anymore. But if you're going to pivot and you're going to save your company, you have to make those choices, no matter if it's a contractor or some company you hire to do your branding or whatever, you have to make choices between paying yourselves or paying something that the company needs. I can't think of like the exact saying right now or who said it, but it's like everything you say yes to is you saying no to something else. Absolutely. So if you keep going after this thing because you don't want to be seen, perceived, feel like a quitter, like there's something else over here that you are potentially missing out on. Granted, you have to balance that. Like, don't try something for a day and be like, oh, this doesn't work. Right? Like, you need to give it some time. But there is a point in time where it's just not working. And there's actually been a couple of lounge members who part of the realization was, I don't want to do this business anymore. And they shut their product-based business down. Now, I'm not saying you guys have to go out and do that. But like, 
sometimes that is the right answer for you. And that's okay. One of them is going to focus on something else that she loves and had been neglecting to focus on the product piece. Another one is like basically retiring and her and her husband are going to go travel the world while they rent their house out to traveling nurses. And I'm like, how does that get rid of that business? Like, screw selling jewelry, go travel the world. So I want everyone to be creating, working in, focusing on, building something that lights them the fuck up. And sometimes... If you don't know what lights you up because you're burnt out, tired, overworked, just over it, then sometimes it's easier to think about what you don't like and what doesn't light you up. Then you at least are identifying what to move towards or move away from. Because I think, at least for me, like running so many pivots, so much change and a large business to my standards and my experience through COVID, I just ran out. I was burned out. All I knew and could see was what I didn't want and I didn't know what I wanted anymore. It's happened to me in this business too. I mean, I have a much more clear picture now, but in the beginning, I was super stoked to like do people's email because I love it. And it wasn't until I did it where I was like, this is taking the joy out of this. I don't want to do this. (laughs) And so very similar experience of not necessarily knowing exactly what I want, but definitely knowing what I don't want. Part of that is building a team. Don't want it. And, you know, Nicole, right? She's building a boutique ads agency. Well, the only way to do that is to build a team. And she loves the idea of doing that. And I was like, more power to you, girl, because no, ain't for me. Even though things pull at me, when I see the holes and I'm like, oh man, if I had a bigger team, I could support them better. But I have to think beyond that. Why do you not want to build a team? I don't want the responsibility of other people's livelihoods And here's the thing. If I'm working one-on-one with a client, let's take doing done-for-you email automation setups, which I still do and will continue to do on a very limited basis. If I fuck something up, that's cool. I fucked it up. If someone else fucks it up, I'm responsible for their screw-up. So not only do I have to make sure that I don't screw stuff up, I have to make sure my team doesn't screw stuff up and I have to answer for it. And I'm just not interested in that. If I had a product-based business, that would be different because my team would be marketing people. It would be fulfillment people. So I hire people to help me with my stuff. But the only way to scale client work would be to hire people to do client work. And I'm not into it. I would say I remember being in a mastermind and I remember asking people in the mastermind if anybody liked managing. Because I just don't like managing. (laughs) And someone was like, yes, I love it. And I was like, okay, I just wanted to know that people like that existed. I'm a super clear communicator and I love empowering people and setting them up for success. But I felt like I just lost a certain amount of freedom with that weight of responsibility. It no longer was as light and agile 
as I wanted it to be as a CEO, to be able to be like, here's my vision, go for it. Like maybe if I could settle in a particular way and like kind of be more straightforward, but I change so much and I'm always like agile. And you can't do that when you have a team and the bigger it gets, the harder it is to do that and the more limiting it is. And look again, some people love it and that's amazing. And if that's you, do you and I can support you and help you get there. But if you feel like that's what you want because it's what you should want or it sounds cool or it looks cool or a lot of times people just want to make more money and they think that's the only way. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation because I really do think that's where the rubber hits the road. There's only so much you can do. So if you're staring growth in the face, you have choices to make in that place. And that's where you chase the dollar, you chase the top line rev. But in the end, where's the fucking profit? In your employees' pockets. There you go. Everyone needs to make a living, but do you want to take $1 in on your left hand and move it to your right hand and give it away? And that's what ends up happening. I was just talking to someone the other day. She has a very particular business model and this is the business that she's creating, but they just hired like eight more people or something because that's what it takes to run the business that she's creating. And at some point, it's going to turn back around if that is the right investment. Hire those eight people, leverage them, check out your profit in two years or whatever it takes. And did you make what you needed to not just on the top line, but on the bottom line? We're not paying close enough attention to the bottom line. And then the only other thing I would say, too, is it really depends on what your exit strategy is. If you plan to sell it at some point, nobody really wants to buy a business that they have to work in all the time. (laughs) So... It is important to really think about that and you want it to function without you. But that also doesn't always mean a big, huge team. So I think it all starts with let's go with Ellie's way. What don't you want? Figure out what you really don't want. And I mean, shit, I did the same thing when it came to dating. And I was like, well, I don't want that, that or that. This would be cool, but not that. So start with what you know you don't want and you can start to reverse engineer what you do want out of your business. This one went a little long today and I feel like you and I could just talk all day long, but I do want to be mindful of your time and the time of our listeners. Did we cover what your biggest mistake in business was or do you have a different one to share? Yes, we did in the meandering way. And then another thing I thought of this morning when I was thinking about this question was, not building a simple product. If I really sat down and was like strategically going to start a business, and I know this is going to resonate with you, I would pick one product and I would understand how money flows through that one product from the price it costs, like that I charge to the bottom line and everything in between. And I would work that idea through until I felt really good I would almost think of it as a micro example of the whole business. And I would build a simple product and I would only sell one or two things. That's what I would do. So I guess a big mistake is not really thinking about how important having a simple, small catalog can be. 
Well, and you are in a unique situation because you're not selling finished goods. You're selling the pieces of it. So you have to source the pieces and then put the pieces together and package them up in a nice little bow so somebody else will want to buy the pieces. You added a whole extra layer of complexity to your business. On a more positive note, what is kind of your biggest success? Learning about email marketing this year. (laughs) You know, she did not pay me to say that, I promise. But really learned the power of email marketing and understood how important it was, how much more important it is to me right now than social media. 100%. I'm just going to leave that right there because that's perfect. If the audience takes nothing else away from our conversation today, which I do guys recommend that you listen to this one a second time, I'm going to try and recap some of the nuggets (laughs) in the intro and the show notes because this was so good. But if they only take one thing away, what would you want it to be? I mean, that's a hard one because I want to say intangible things like know your numbers, make decisions based on your numbers, know what lights you up, all of that. But I would say if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you love being an entrepreneur, then it's fucking hard. The game is addicting and it's fulfilling when you figure it out. But don't be scared to change or stop. Don't think of it as quitting. I love that. It's so important. Even I think about my brick and mortar, like I could have kept going, but I didn't want that life anymore. I didn't want to live in New York anymore. I just was like, I have a successful business that I'm about to shut down. I'm going to live on what's left over. I'm going to move across the country and then I will figure it out. And what did I do? I went back to working part-time in retail just to start over in this new place where I didn't know anybody. And I took the long way around. If you guys know the Dixie Chicks, that song is my theme song. But here I am and I'm figuring it out. And it's okay. Like most people would say, why did you shut that down? Well, because I just wasn't that into it anymore. There's the entrepreneurial mindset. We need to be interested in what we do. That's why we don't work for other people. It's like not going to look logical to any outsider. But you know in yourself, there's something in there that makes sense. And you don't have to fucking explain it to anyone else anyways. Yes, exactly. I love it. Tell everyone where they can find you. And I know you have a pretty kick-ass sale going on for Black Friday, too. Give us the deets. So I'm on Instagram at Clumhouse, K-L-U-M-H-O-U-S-E, and then Clumhouse.com, same thing. Facebook, too. And then I'm going to do 20% off of everything, including kits and patterns, fabric, supplies, you name it. Everything in my shop is handpicked and hand curated to be the top quality bag making tools and accessories. And we're doing sale. Friday through Monday, 20% off. I love it. Make sure you check the show notes for all of the details. Thank you, Ellie, so much for putting it all out there and having this super honest conversation. I really appreciate it, guys. I hope that this just inspires you to just do it your own damn way and like screw what everyone else says. And on that note, (laughs) we're out. I hope you have a kick-ass rest of your day and I'll see you on the flip side, friend. 
you so much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard, I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're looking to surround yourself with more product entrepreneurs who totally get your life right now, get your booty on over to the e-commerce badassery Facebook group. Can't wait to see you there. Until next time, e-commerce friends, stay badass. Thank you.